Amen. Go ahead and take a seat and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And we are in the fourth and last week of our study in the first three chapters of Genesis. And so the last three weeks we've been in chapters 1 and 2. And uh, this morning we will be going through the whole uh, of chapter 3. But just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going for the next few weeks... Today we're finishing up this series, and then next Sunday, like I mentioned during announcements, is Mission Sunday. And then the week after that, uh, we will be starting a series in the book of Galatians. And uh, so for those of you who are sick of seeing me up here every week, Pastor Mike will be back preaching regularly again uh, when we start Galatians here in, uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, <laughs> yay! <laughs> It's okay, don't seem too excited. Uh, but if you remember over the last few weeks, we've said each week that the first three chapters of Genesis really serves to lay the foundation for everything that we believe. And we would not have the rest of our Bible if it was not for Genesis 1 through 3 because all of the scriptures point back to what takes place in these three chapters. And uh, if you remember, we've, we've talked about five questions that the first three chapters of Genesis really serve to answer. Who is God? Where did we come from? Why are we here? What happened to make things the way they are now? And what is God doing in response? And the first week we answered that first question, who is God? And talked about all the things that we can know about God from Genesis 1-1. And then the second week we talked about that second question, where did we come from? And we talked about how Creation is the work of God displaying the goodness of God for the glory of God. And then last week, we answered that third question, why are we here? And we saw how God made us in his image, making us distinct from the rest of creation, giving us special value and a special role, all for his glory. But if you're like me, you've probably looked at the last three weeks in these first two chapters of Genesis and have said that seems great, but that does not seem to be the way things are now. In fact, in so many ways, the world seems to be the opposite of what we have talked about the last three weeks. So the title of this morning's message is The Sin of Man and the Goodness of God. And we're going to answer those last two questions what happened to make things the way they are now and what is God doing in response? And so uh, please read along. I'm going to read through the whole chapter uh, of chapter 3. Uh, so read along with me as I read out loud and then I will pray for our time and we will jump right into the text. So starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, that being Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So with that, let me please pray for our time, and then we will jump into the text. Father God, we come to you right now only because of the finished work of your son, Jesus. We recognize that we in ourselves are completely unworthy to come before you, yet because of the forgiveness you have given us through your son, we can boldly approach your throne of grace with confidence. So now, Lord, as we come, we ask that you would just speak to our hearts through your word, that you would open our eyes to see what you are doing that we would turn and glorify you. In the same way, we pray for Pastor Adam Viramontes and Mosaic Church, and we pray that 
you would be speaking through him this morning, that you would be present in their midst, and that you would be opening their eyes to see what you are doing, that they would turn and give you glory, Lord. And we pray all of this for the sake of your glorious name. Amen. Okay, so we have an enormous amount to cover this morning. So we're just going to get right to it. Uh, the, the main point of this morning's message is that everything that is wrong today is the result of sin. Yet God is making everything right through Jesus. Everything that is wrong today is the result of sin. Yet God is making everything right through Jesus. And, and you'll see on, on your bulletin, the first point is the reason for Adam's sin. Right? The reason for the sin of Adam and Eve, we're, we're going to walk through in verses 1 through 6. But what we're also going to see as we walk through this progression of events is we're going to see a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities to what goes on inside of us every time we sin. And so in, in looking at, at the sin that we see in verses 1 through 6, the first thing that we see is the serpent, that being Satan, questioning God's word. Questioning God's word. He comes to, to Eve in the second half of verse 1. And he says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said, is it? Last week, we read very clearly that God said, you may eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we already have Satan misrepresenting God and questioning God. And, and just that question, right? Did God really say that? So this is really at the root of all sin. When we question the legitimacy of what God has said, when we question the legitimacy of the commands of God, we set ourselves up to go down a road of rebellion against God. Is that really what God meant? Does God really expect us to do that? Is that really still apply today? Surely God couldn't have meant that. And we see all kinds of ways that we question the word of God. And when we question the word of God, it leads us to misapplying God's word. See, Eve responds to the Satan and he says, we may, or she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Okay, good so far. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Still going well. Neither shall you touch it. Nope. God did not say that, did he? God didn't say anything about touching it. So now you have Eve misunderstanding God's word and adding to it. And then Satan's response. But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, You will not surely die. See, when we question God's word and we misapply God's word and we are not confident about what God's word says and we are not familiar with his commands and we are not clear on his expectations, we are setting ourselves up to misapply, to add to, to subtract from, or to altogether change the commands of God. And then when we do this, what happens 
is the very thing that Satan does in verse 4. Oh, those consequences God said were going to happen, those things that God warned you about, those aren't really going to happen. You don't have to worry. God's not really serious. Now all of a sudden we are not only misapplying God's word and questioning God, we are running down a road that doesn't even exist that we have created on our own because, our lack, because of our lack of understanding of God's word and our questioning of his commands. And really what this is based in when we question God and when we, when we misapply his word and when we seek to change his commands, really what this is based in is a questioning of God's very goodness. A questioning of the goodness of God. Look at verse 5. Satan continues, says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, he's essentially telling Adam and Eve, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he's jealous. And he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to be all by himself. And if you, if you eat this fruit, you're going to be better. You're going to be greater. You're going to be like God. And God doesn't want that. And we do this all the time today. I've heard more times than I can count, and I'm sure that, that most, if not all of you, have heard this statement. Well, I just think that God would want me to be happy. And so, I know that the Bible says I shouldn't do this, but it would make me happy. We do that all the time to justify why we're going to do something that we know we shouldn't do. Well, I just think it would make me happy to leave my spouse and marry someone else. So I think God would be okay with that because he just wants me to be happy, right? God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to buy this house I know I can't afford and be in debt up to my eyeballs because that would make me happy. God just wants me to be happy, so... I think he'd be okay with me not tithing so that I can buy that car I've wanted. This is the justification that those in the homosexual community and in the transgendered community use to embrace that lifestyle while still professing faith in Jesus. Well, I believe that God would want me to be happy. But if we look at any of those things, what if... What if the thing that we think is going to make us happy is actually going to lead to our destruction? That while I think it's going to make me happy, it will actually lead to my peril. It will lead to my ultimate destruction. Do you think God would still want that for you? I don't think so. Because you and I have a very limited understanding of what would in fact make us happy. And God being infinitely wise and perfectly good knows exactly what is best for us. And so his commands, in fact, his very prohibitions are evidence of his goodness and his love for us. The, the, the prohibition to not eat of that fruit was God's goodness. It was not him keeping something good from Adam and Eve. 
So then when we start to question God's goodness, we start to justify our sinful decisions. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Good for food meets a physical need. I need this. I know God said I shouldn't have this, but, but I feel like I need it. It's, I mean, it's, it's good for my most basic human need. And so why would that be a bad thing? Right? Justifying sin based on physical needs. Pleasing to the eyes. It's attractive. It's appealing. It looks nice. It, it's something I want. Justifying sin based on something being appealing. And lastly, it was to be desired to make one wise. See, Adam and Eve had everything that they needed in the presence of God. They didn't need to eat of this tree to, be, to have wisdom. They, they needed to be in the presence of God. But yet, they wanted something more than what they had. They wanted to be something more than what they were. And they thought that in eating this tree, they would be greater. This is based in pride. This is based in a desire to have more than what God has given them and we do the same thing. If I do this thing, I'll, I'll be better. If I have this thing, it will make me a better person and so I'm going to do it even though God makes clear that I shouldn't. And all of this leads to the last thing, choosing self and rejecting God. Because Adam and Eve had a clear command from God and at the end of verse 6, after questioning God and justifying their sinful decisions, they both ate the fruit. They had the choice to obey God or they had the choice to do what they wanted to do. And they chose what they wanted. Essentially rejecting God and choosing themselves. And that is the root of sin. That is the root of our sin. When I want something more than I want God. When I want something for myself more than I want what God wants. Then I sin. John Piper said it well when he said, Sin is what you do when your heart is not fully satisfied in God. That when I am not satisfied in all that God has given me and when I am not satisfied in all that God has done for me and when I am not satisfied to find my identity in him and how he made me, then I go looking elsewhere and I choose myself and I choose sin. And so we see that th this was not just a, a mistake. This was an incredible act of rebellion. This was an incredible act of rejecting the God of the universe and embracing self. So next we see the result. We see the result of Adam's sin. Now, now we, we just oftentimes glance over the extent of the loss that happened in this moment. Everything in all of creation was affected by this decision. 
This was no small thing. And while we, we have a very hard time measuring the extent of the loss of this, Genesis 3 gives us some insight in, into exactly what happened. So what we see right out of the gate is that the design of Genesis 1 and 2 was fractured. And if we, if we just go back to last week, we talk about how man was made in the image of God. And, and if you remember that, that the man and the woman at the end of chapter 2, they were both naked and were not ashamed because they were made for relationship with one another. And the very first thing that we see happen when they eat of the fruit is that they have overwhelming shame. Before Genesis 3, no shame. In Genesis 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths, trying to cover themselves, trying to cover their shame. Not only that, but remember, man was made in God's image, and part of bearing the image of God meant that we were made for relationship with God. And in verse 8, that relationship is broken. If you look at verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This relationship with God, this communion with God was broken. And now man is running from God. Now man is hiding from God when he should have been in communion with God. And when, when, when God gave the command to not eat of the tree, if you remember in Genesis 2, he said that if they ate of the tree, they would surely die. And now that, that death was not just physical death. That death was spiritual death because to be separated from God is the worst form of death. Because it's not just that I'm not breathing anymore. It's that, that what my very soul was made for, I no longer have it. And see, all people would be affected by this. Adam and Eve were not the only ones affected by this. Every single person who came from their lineage, which is everybody, would have this very same sin nature. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. That because of the sin of one man, all became sinners. That we all have this sin nature now. And so all of us share this brokenness. All of us share this separation with God. And it would affect every aspect of our lives. That this brokenness that we know now, this, this fractured relationship would affect every way that we engage with the world around us. Which is why there is so much brokenness in the world. Because our natural way of functioning is separation from God. Is a broken relationship with the God who made us. But what we see next is that, that the very roles... The, the very responsibilities that God gave the man and the woman would be affected by this. When God pronounces the, the various curses on them, he, he pronounces a curse on both the man and the woman, and what we see is that both of them tie back to their God-given responsibilities from Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. So the woman received uh, 
the curse in verse 15 or in verse 16. And he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. See, the, the two primary functions of the wife in this relationship, first of all, the, the biological function that only a woman can do and that is bear children. And then serving as the helper to the husband. Walking alongside of him being a team with him as they work together, both of those things would become painful. Obviously, anyone, any of you ladies who have had children know exactly what that's like, that that is incredibly painful. And so for you, even if you had a child years ago, you probably still vividly remember the extent of that pain. But even, even in the woman's relationship with her husband, she would experience great pain. That, that phrase, your desire shall be for your husband, can literally be translated, your desire shall be against your husband. That, that while she was made to be a helper fit for him and that he was to lead well and that they were to work together with him as the head and her as the helper and that that was a very good thing as we talked about last week. Now the, the very thing that she was made for, that was meant for her good for her protection, for her growth, for her thriving, would now be a source of disdain and animosity for her. That she would resent his leadership. That she would, would resent him as the head of their home. And this would create great pain in their relationship. But she was not the only one. She was not the only one who received a curse. Adam received a curse as well because they were both complicit in this. See, Adam's was that the ground was cursed and that work would become hard. The curse was not that he would have to work. Let's be really clear about that. Work is a good thing. Work is a God-given responsibility that we saw in Genesis chapter 1 when God told the man and the woman to subdue the earth. Work is a good thing, but now work would be hard. It would be tiring. And in this work the ground would in fact produce the very thing that he did not want it to produce. See, we look at, at verse 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. We know all too well about thorns here in New Mexico. And anytime that you walk in your backyard and you step on one of those awful goat heads, you can, you can remember that's because of the fall that the ground is going to cause me pain and most specifically in the bottom of my foot, right? But also, if you know anything about weeds, you know that they grow and they choke out everything around it. That, that you cannot just let your backyard just go and this oasis is going to grow because the grass won't be able to take root because the weeds will choke it out. You see, the ground was now going to produce that which was going to cause it to be harder for the man to grow food. And this is not just limited to agriculture and growing of crops. This is why you can work a job for 20 years and be laid off for no reason or a seemingly no reason. 
This is why you can work so hard to, to build up your investments and your retirement and then the stock market crashes and you lose all of it. This is why your water heater breaks and then your washing machine breaks and then the water line in the wall breaks. And because creation is constantly working against us. Work is hard and things go wrong and that is a part of this curse. And the main theme running through all of this is that mankind no longer gets to enjoy the fullness of God's intended design and creation. Not only is mankind in strife with the ground, not only now is his relationship with other people going to be hard, but his relationship with the very God who made him is broken. He cannot enjoy anything the way that it was intended. And you see, what this, what this leaves, this leaves a state, if we were to stop right here, this leaves the most hopeless moment in all of human history. Because this sin that Adam and Eve committed in choosing self over God and that we would then all receive the same sin nature as a result, we are all left in the position where left to our natural selves, we will every single time choose ourselves over God. And we will not be able to do anything to help our situation, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 when he says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good, none who seeks after God saying mankind is hopeless if God doesn't do something. So we see God's response to this situation. We see the response of God to sin in verses 14 through 24. The first thing that we see is God pronounces a curse on everyone involved pronounces a curse on the serpent. He pronounces a curse on the woman. He pronounces a curse on the man. And essentially what he's doing is he's coming right on the scene and pointing out the sin. God knew what happened and God came straight to Adam. And he points out the sin and he tells them the consequences because sin is sin and all sin has consequences. See, God, God could not have just looked at this and said, well, I mean, we just got started. Like, let's just pretend like this didn't happen and just hope this doesn't happen again. No, God is a just judge and he's perfectly righteous. And he must deal with sin in a just and righteous way. But he must do so in a way where his glory remains. He must do so in a way where his justice stands and he must do so in a way where his goodness is on display because as we've talked about a few weeks ago, that we hope in who God is. And so his response to this situation must display who he is in all that he is. So next we see God promise rescue. Verse 15, he says, in speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, one person, he shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. This is what has been referred to throughout church history as the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. This is the first moment in the scriptures where the gospel is proclaimed, where God is saying how he is going to fix this problem. And he's saying that he's going to send one person to take care of it, that being Jesus. In this moment, God is foreshadowing, pointing to the fact that he is going to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for us and to put an end to what began here in Genesis 3. And John echoes this in 1 John 3, 8 when he says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That, that what Satan sought to do here, Jesus would put an end to. That Jesus would have victory and that Satan would be defeated and crushed. Next, we see that God makes provision for his children. God makes provision for his children. Look, look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I remember back to verse 7 in how Adam and Eve tried to address their shame and tried to cover themselves up by sewing together fig leaves, which would not have worked well for a few reasons. One, it would not have covered very much. Two, they would have dried out. Where would they have been left then, right? Just trying to do it all over again. And, and isn't that so like us? That when we have shame, when we sin, and we try to cover it up in some way that we think can cover our shame and can take care of our sin, and we are constantly left realizing that it is insufficient and that we cannot cover our shame and that we just constantly are in the same cycle over and over again, proving over and over that we need a Savior. And so God recognizes that their attempt to clothe themselves was not a good one. And he makes clothes for them. But it says that he made skins, garments of skins. The only way he could have done that would have been to kill an animal. So we see the very first blood that was shed in the Bible was God putting an animal to death to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Do you see the connection there? Do you see what God is foreshadowing? That he would shed blood to cover the shame of the sin of his people. And he just promised in verse 15 that he was going to send Jesus to defeat Satan. And that in the finished work of Jesus, as, he, as his blood was shed on the cross for our sins, that we would have forgiveness of our sins and that our shame would be covered. That he would make provision for our sin by shedding the very blood of his own son. This is why Paul writes in Romans 3, 22 through 24, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a wrath-absorbing 
sacrifice that removes God's wrath from us and places it on the sacrifice. So Paul, Paul tells us flat out, Jesus is going to die to pay the penalty for your sin so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be made right with God. And you need only receive that by faith, putting your complete dependence on Jesus because of his finished work. And lastly, what we see in God's response is, that is his protection from eternal consequences. His protection from eternal consequences. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. You notice God doesn't finish that sentence. He just acts. And he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Now before we think that that is harsh on his part, because I think too often we see that and we go, oh, that's so sad. God made this beautiful garden and now he's kicking them out. Let's just, let's just imagine for a minute that all of this played out and we see the incredible loss that took place and we see Adam and Eve's current state and the curses and the pain and the shame and then they walk over to that tree of life and eat of its fruit and live forever in this state. And just, just think in your own life. Pain that you endure, hardship that you endure, broken relationships that you endure, physical pain, disease, all kinds of things that plague your daily life and make things difficult and painful and filled with sorrow. And imagine you're not going to carry that for 10 more years, not 50 more years. Imagine 20,000 years from now, it is the same way, but your body has continued to break down and those infirmities have continued to get worse. It, it's not hard to realize no, this was incredibly loving of God to do this. To say, they've already made this situation bad enough. We're not going to let them. I'm not going to let them do anything worse. So I'm going to kick them out. And you see, this, this foreshadows God making a way for us to be protected from the eternal consequences of our sins still. Even though we don't live forever in this life, we don't deal with the pain of this life forever, but we will live in eternity. And we will either live in separation from God in hell or in the presence of God in heaven. And it is only through the finished work of Jesus and putting our faith in him and accepting his sacrifice on our behalf that we can be forgiven of our sins and live in the presence of God in heaven for all eternity instead of living for eternity separated from God in hell. And what we see in all of this, this is only the third chapter of the Bible and yet what we see in all of this is the work of Christ 
Jesus atoning for our sin, Jesus making up for our mistakes, Jesus living the perfect life that we could not live, Jesus dying the death that paid the penalty for our sin, Jesus covering our shame, Jesus making a way for us to be with God for all eternity. And you notice that at no point does God say, well, boy, you guys really messed this up. So here's what you need to do now to fix it. At no point in this entire chapter does God put the responsibility on Adam and Eve to fix their situation. At no point does he put the responsibility on them to be perfect, to be righteous, and to earn their way back to heaven. Instead, God puts the responsibility squarely on his own shoulders. He pursues Adam when Adam goes and hides. He promises Jesus when Adam and Eve were hopeless. He covered their shame when their attempts to cover it were futile. God is the one constantly acting. And this is why we read throughout the scriptures that salvation is not up to you and me, but it is up to God because God is the only one who can ensure it and make sure that his purpose stands. And so me earning God's favor should not be how I respond to what happened in Genesis chapter 3, but instead it should be me responding to God and saying, you did everything. And now I want to live my life for you because of the finished work of your son. So what happens now? talked about the first three chapters of Genesis for the last four weeks and we spent three weeks talking about how everything was very good. But we're not living in Genesis 1 and 2. We're living in the reality of Genesis 3 right now. That we live in a broken, fallen world and that we are sinners in need of a Savior and thanks be to God that we have a Savior. But does Genesis 1 and 2 now just serve as, as a reminder of the good old days that we're never going to get to experience again? No, it doesn't. Let's turn over to Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 21. If you don't know where Revelation is... It'll honestly be faster to just turn to the end of your Bible and then turn backwards because Revelation 21 is the second to last chapter in the entire Bible. But between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, mankind has over and over and over again proven that we are all sinners and that we are terrible saviors of ourselves. And then God gave us his law in the Old Testament and every single human being proved that they could not keep it. That they could not keep his perfect standard and constantly we saw that we are terrible saviors. And so God fulfilled his promise from Genesis 3 and sent his son Jesus to die. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live and died the death that we deserved on our behalf rose from the dead, vindicating his perfect life, and he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God Almighty, and he will return to usher in eternity. And so when we come to Gen or Revelation 21, that is where we find ourselves. 
All of that has taken place. Final judgment has happened. Everything is done. And this is what we read about how things will be at that point. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them, at, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And doesn't that just resonate with your heart? That God is making all things new. And there will come a time where God will wipe away every tear. And there will be no pain. And we will be with God forever. And, and doesn't that just at the core of your being make you say, Yes. And it's because that's what we were made for in the first place. And God did not forget the garden. God did not forget Genesis 1 and 2. God did not forget the purpose for which he made all things. God will renew all of it. And we will get to live in the reality of what we were made for for all eternity. And one of the reasons why we know this is what he goes on to describe for the rest of this book. That as he describes the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where we will spend eternity, it sounds so much like Genesis 1 and 2. Let me just read a few verses from chapter 22. So I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5. Just listen to how similar this sounds. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Do you remember the river in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2? Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there, be, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, in the, in the garden, God had to cast out Adam and Eve so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life. But in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be a tree of life that everyone can eat from year-round. And the relationship with God in the garden was broken in Genesis 3, but we will spend eternity 
back in that perfect communion with God, face to face with him. And look at Revelation 21, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Genesis 3 will never happen again. The fall will never happen again. Nothing unclean will ever enter, and nothing detestable will ever happen when God makes all things new. The only ones who get to spend eternity with God are those who are written in the Lamb's book of life and those are the names of those who have put their faith in Jesus in response to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so our hope is not based in us. Our hope is not based in, in how we do things right as a result of what we've learned these last four weeks. Our hope is based in the fact that Jesus died for our sins to cover our shame and to restore us to a right relationship with God so that we can be with him for all eternity. And if you do not know that reality, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, you are living apart from right relationship with God and you will not know what God truly meant for your life until you are restored to that right relationship with him by putting your faith in his son Jesus. And so what we have seen above all else the last four weeks is the goodness of God on display over and over and over again. We see his goodness in all that he is. We see his goodness in all that he made. We see his goodness in, in the purpose that he made for mankind. And we see his goodness in how he responded to our sin. And so I can think of no better way to respond to this than by taking communion together. And so we, uh, we have a gluten-free option in the front if you need that. And we practice open communion here, which means if you have put your faith in Jesus, you are free to come and partake of communion with us. Uh, but as everybody uh, comes, we, we have some in the front as well as some in the back. Uh, so if you're able to go toward the back, please do so so that we don't get congested up front. Uh, but after we have all taken, taken them and gone back to our seat, please wait so that we'll take them all together. But as you get the elements and go back to your seat, thank God for all of his goodness and all that he's done through the finished work of his son in your life. Because apart from the response of God, apart from who God is and the goodness of God, we would have no hope. And all of our hope is based in who he is. So go ahead and come, and then we'll take them together.